The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Go. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of In the Market Trenches. If this is your first time checking us out, we're available anywhere podcasts are available. You can check us out at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. You can check us out at snn.network. You can check us out on the SNN YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash snnwire. I'm Eric Fury. I'm joined here with my partner, Gary Reby. We have a very special guest for you today. If you spent any considerable amount of time in the microcap land, here he is, Paul Andriola. Paul, welcome. Thank you for being here. Hey, uh, happy to be here. Thanks, guys. Well, you're something of a of a legend among Canadian small and micro cap investors. Uh, so we're, we're really happy to have you on. Can you just uh, give us a little bit of, uh, for people who don't know you, a little bit about your background and, uh, you know, what you're working on today and all that, all that sort of stuff? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm located up here in uh, Vancouver, Canada, and um, I probably spent the last 20 or so years in the, the capital markets, um, really focusing on microcap stocks. Um, my, my background or education has uh, very little to do with, uh, with finance. I, I studied uh, construction management and spent some time working in the construction industry, but I uh, really had a passion for investing, uh, started reading everything I could on the, uh, you know, the, the investment game. Uh, became a broker for about 10 years. Um, I think maybe honed my, my investing skills a little bit uh, working in the industry. But um, even that wasn't really exactly uh, what, uh, what I wanted to do. So, um, you know, I was always finding that my portfolio was uh, probably generating more income for me than, uh, than any sort of commissions or any fees that I was generating. So it made more sense to focus on that. And um, that's what I've been doing. I've been uh, sort of looking for microcap investments for the last 20 or so years and been fortunate that I've caught a couple of really good ones. And uh, right now what I do, uh, along with one of my analyst uh, partners, is I write a newsletter uh, called Small Cap Discoveries, uh, focused on you know, trying to find the best microcap companies that are uh, publicly listed up here in Canada. Got it, got it. And um, just so, and. In addition to doing the newsletter, you guys are also hosting some sort of conference in, in January? Yeah, so um, I've teamed up with uh, Bobby Kraft at uh, SNN Network, and we have a virtual conference that we're presenting uh, January 6th and 7th, and uh, it's it's Canadian themed. So it's uh, all, all the presenting companies are Canadian listed companies that we think, uh, you know, are, are somewhat undiscovered or mispriced or have something that we think uh, will appeal to, you know, a broader uh, investment audience than just uh, the small amount of Canadians that are up here uh, huddled in the cold. Nice, nice. Eric, Eric and I have a soft spot in our heart for some Canadian companies because some of the things that we've, we've most loved have been sort of off the run Canadian uh, duly listed things uh, for sure. So we've, We've got a soft spot in our heart for that. For that, um, awesome. Eric, I interrupted you. I'm, 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 uh, I'm being rude, which is very un-Canadian of me. <laughs> Where can people go to find out more information on the conference? Uh, you, um, I have to. You'd have to get back to me on that. SNN Network will. Uh, you'll be able to find the um, 
actually, no, wait, it's Canada. So C-A-N-A-D-A dot S-N-N dot network. Um, you'll find all the information you want right there. Producer awesome. Bobby with the save. There you go. That's right. <laughs> you know he's counting Bobby. Give, give the hat tip to producer Bobby. So, <laughs> so Paul, you're, you're pretty well known within the microcap circles. Um, you know, our show, what we do is we like to sort of delve into people's past experiences, usually something, something that people are no longer involved with, lessons learned. You know, uh, we find that you learn the most when either things didn't work out exactly as you hoped or, or for one reason or another, it, you know, is really a suboptimal outcome for somebody. And uh, that's the whole whole point of our show. Um, we were talking beforehand, you, you, you've got a lot of different stories. Uh, which, which one would you think would be very interesting for uh, our viewers, our, our listeners? So, I, well, one that probably gave me the biggest lesson, um, especially, uh, you know, relevant to the microcap space. I, I don't think, you know, those those that are investing in the microcap space aren't looking for, you know, a 10 or 15 percent type of annualized return. You're looking for big winners. Um, you know, microcaps are really where I think you can generate a significant amount of wealth. And, and the story that probably... Um, taught me the most was was still a winning story for me but um i you know i i learned that um you want to hold your winners as long as you can rather than just taking a, a win for the win column and uh, it, was, it was a company called bio um Boflex. um and i can't remember the exact year but it was relatively early in my investing career um i had a strategy on how to find stocks um, which was starting to work out well, but I had a very poor strategy on how to hold stocks. And well, why don't you start with the beginning? What was the search strategy yeah. that led to you finding Bowflex? So, um, so I one of the books I read that really changed my financial sort of strategy and, and, and life to some degree was a company or a book called How to Make Money in Stocks by William O'Neill. Um, for, for a lot of people, it's it's a bit of a bible, um, and it certainly really changed the way I looked at, at finding stocks and. And the, the thesis or the main criteria behind it is you really want to find companies that are growing very rapidly and are not needing to constantly refinance. So you want a company that likely has high, um, you know, high revenue growth and earnings. And if you can find those, there's some other sort of technical factors you look for, like, you know, stocks, the stocks hitting a 52 week high and some things that really were not sort of taught to me, you know, in sort of the, uh, the sort of normal course of financial education. It was always buy low, sell high. The premise of buy high and sell higher was was really new to me. So this this book really changed the way I thought. And so I, I built a strategy around trying to find these companies that had those those sort of three things going for it: high revenue growth, um, you know, profitability, and then hitting new 52-week high. And I really stress that uh, still to this day. So um, I started reading through CEDAR filings. I started literally going through all the uh, financial filings up here in Canada. I found this little company called Bowflex. And if anybody is, is old enough, uh, they might remember these crazy infomercials that you saw on TV. And um, it was crazy. They were selling these, these <laughs> what, uh, what looked like uh, rubber bands on a piece of metal. And it was... Uh, um, exercise equipment and you typically see these infomercials at you know two o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. and um, but it was working uh, the company was growing at two three hundred percent a year and it was doing that for year after year 
And um, I managed to, you know, fortunately buy in relatively early as, you know, and uh, about a year later, the stock was trading, you know, sort of 50. And uh, I thought, well, this is, this is great. I'm, you know, I'm up, I'm making money and uh, I better jump out before it goes back down. And, um, you know, that was, that was my big mistake uh, because the company just kept putting out the numbers and kept growing and kept growing. And subsequently it went, I think after accounting for splits and everything up to about there. So, yeah, I mean, so I look back and I, you know, try to really understand why I sold it. And ultimately it was because I was up. That was the only reason. So again, you learn to hold your winners in the micro cap space. Otherwise you leave, you know, you leave a lot of profits on the table. So how do you go ahead, Gary? No, please. Uh, so looking back on that situation now, if you were to replay that, obviously, you know, the outcome, you know, how, what's the internal dialogue that you go through to give yourself the conviction to continue to hold that? So, I mean, that's exactly it. You use the word conviction. I think that's that's vitally important that you you have to know enough about the company so that um, you can you can gain that conviction you need because it, it's it's rarely a straight lineup. There's always going to be hiccups. There's always going to be issues. And you have to have that sort of internal fortitude to understand that this might be, um, you know, it might be fleeting. It, you know, the issues they're facing might be temporary or the, the valuation issue. Um, you know, I, I remember looking back and, and say, okay, well, it's it's gone up, you know, 5X. So therefore it, it, it's not cheap anymore. That's not the way the real world works. And you've got to, you've got to have in advance a sell strategy that is conducive to these type of companies. Um, you can think back of all the other, you know, big major wins over years. And there's always a time where people thought it was expensive, expensive, expensive. And yet it goes up another 10, another 20, another 30 times in value because you're not properly valuing. Um, you're taking sort of a value approach to a growth strategy. And if you do that, you're going to leave so many winners on the table. Yeah, so I think I think if you look back on the vast majority of value managers, a lot of them will, you know, I've listened to a lot of them give talks and a lot of them will say the same thing. It's like my, my biggest sin is I sell stocks too early. And it's sort of like, well, if that's your biggest sin, don't you want to go back and sort of do a postmortem on that and maybe solve for that problem? And like, I, I don't know. I, but at the same time, it's hard to sort of balance the the you know having being grounded in some rationality versus falling in love with the stock you know and, and so how do you how do you play those off against each other well i i think the the advantage i have now is i've got you know 20 plus years of experience in dealing with growth stocks so you you come to know that uh more times than not you're still mispricing it, it you you've got to understand the the valuation metrics that are really key in a company that's growing very rapidly um you can't tether valuation to you know a price earnings ratio by itself you've got to use other other factors that will allow for that kind of rate of growth so that you you maintain a degree of comfort and and, and as well um sometimes in the short term the stock will just be overvalued um and as long as it's growing um you know that that overvaluation will uh, sort of the company will catch up to its overvaluation so yeah. you just have to know these things and be prepared for those those bumps in the road. Yeah, I think as, as Eric and I evaluate ourselves and things that we're involved with, I think 
as we sit here and look at it, like some of the, the worst reason to, for us to sell is sort of the valuation side of it, but it's also hard because, um, you know, if, you, if you've got intrinsic value growing at a, high, at a decently high clip and you're, you know, you're going to trade at premiums and discounts that all along the way, how do you resist the urge to trade around it? Or you just sort of try, try to sort of forget about it? You know what? So um, there's, there's a, I'd almost say a psychological training that I try to enforce in myself. So sometimes if I think I'm going to trade, um, like I'll actually, I'll, 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 I'll trade. Like I, I will trade around a position to keep me from doing other stupid things. So sometimes you sort of have to feed your personality. If you think you want to trade a little bit, then trade a little bit. But, uh, you know, have it as part of your of your long term strategy. So it's like it, there, there's nothing wrong with being a little bit wrong every now and then. Maybe you trade out of a position and you don't get back in. That's fine. As long as what you do sort of 90 to 95 percent of the time is still, you know, that that sort of core processor strategy that, that you live by. So. Um, so, yeah, so I, I you just. I think you have to build your strategy that fits your personality. And if you're inclined to want to trade, trade a little bit, but make sure it's part of that overall strategy. That makes sense. I like, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I like, I like that. It's uh, that's a pretty unique perspective. I, you don't hear that from a lot of people. Um, I get one of the other questions I have, you know, something like a, like a Bowflex or one of the other names that we might get into later as these companies become more and more successful, you get more and more eyes on these companies, which opens up more and more criticism, mm -hmm. challenging the analysis that you've done. So how do you, how do you kind of block out the noise? Um, as you know, there's good noise and bad noise, right? You want to be open yeah. to good criticism and good feedback and be open to other opinions. But at the end of the day, this is your capital that you're managing mm -hmm. and you want to stay grounded to the thesis that you've, you originally bought into so how do you how do you kind of sift through the noise and, and block out the, the noise that's not appropriate yeah no i i, I learned a while ago that the, the more the more you do just that uh sort of restrict the noise and, and stick to sort of key criteria or key facts the better um but what i what i'd actually say is that what you want to do is you want to invite criticism you want to invite those arguments that go against your thesis and 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 be uh, in, in yeah be inviting to that because you have to continue continue to test your thesis if you want to be successful. And where where I where I really think it gets dangerous is when you're going to look for validation of your thesis. If you keep doing that, you're going to get that that kind yeah. of thinking that doesn't allow you to see the issues coming when they come. So yep. invite criticism, invite you know an alternative idea if you really want to try to. You, you know, adhere to your, your your strategy. I mean, it's it's vitally important that you listen to somebody who might have a different view on something than you do. They may be wrong, but that'll help you validate your your thesis if you continue to look for that criticism. So now, Paul, you, you write about your ideas publicly in your newsletter. Um, how do you balance? So there's oftentimes there's gonna be times where you're, you're right and you've got big winners, and there's gonna be times where you're long, you know, you have losers. How do you, I, maybe we can get into one of the losers a little bit later, maybe some of the lessons from the losers, but mm -hmm. when you're writing about your ideas publicly, how do you try to avoid, and I know a lot of investors that will not talk about a current idea publicly because they're very hesitant to become uh, sort of 
anchored to some belief in the defender of an idea and that sort of thing. How do you how do you think about that? And how and was that a, was that a problem for you in the beginning? Is it is it sort of evolved over time and sort of help us understand that aspect of things because I think it's it's interesting when you're public with your ideas. Yeah. So um, early on, it was it was ego bruising to hear others you know say something negative about an idea I had. Um, I, I think there's a just there's a bigger thing. It's the universe, and I want to sound too too out there, but the universe has a funny way of just making sure that that common sense prevails in the long run. So if if you're out there with an idea, um, it's it's only as good as what you know how close it is to reality. So if I'm out there saying something publicly, um, it's it, I'll I'll get slapped in the face if I'm wrong, and it should happen sooner rather than later. Otherwise, it's going to hurt me more in the long run. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I, I I've got no problem really being public about um, some of my ideas or even some of the stocks uh, I'm involved with. Um, because I think ultimately um, the, the world will will sort of work around me anyway, right? If if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. The sooner the the world comes and tells me I'm wrong, the better for me. If I'm right, well, you know, then same thing. It, it helps sort of um, it helps it helps the thesis meet its end goal faster. Right. How long did it take you to, to learn that? Because I, I feel like a lot of beginning investors, they really want to be right more than they want to make money. And so, uh, you know, it's one of those things that um, can be a tough lesson. It might be one that you have to learn it again and again and again before you really internalize it. Do you have any, I guess my question, how long would it take you to learn that? And do you have any, do you have any advice for anybody who, or suggestions for anybody who, who might be having a hard time with something like that? Um. You know, know your personality, like know who you are. So you can, if, if you're willing to take a lot of criticism and you're prepared for it, I think um, then, then you're, you're more likely to, to be successful. I think um, it's very difficult early on because you're right. You know, humans want to validate themselves by, by being right or being shown that they're right. Um, that doesn't necessarily make you money. It, you know, we're in this business to try to see if we can't generate, you know, increases in our capital. Um, you you have to learn to be wrong. You have to learn to be wrong quickly. And when you're right, you have to learn to stay right as long as you can. So um, use whatever tools are out there, whether it means it's somebody else, whether it means you're going to write your thesis on this company and post it publicly and have somebody criticize it. Um, you want that. You want to get to the truth and the answer as fast as you can and use that sort of validation method, uh, you know, being the, you know, the Internet or being, you know, a community of investors or whatever. Use that so that you can thicken your skin and be prepared to be as wrong as quick as you can, as often as you can and be right as as long as you can. And um, uh, yeah, and, and gain as much as you can from that win. Now, now let me let me ask. Uh, a, 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 you, you mentioned a few different things in your story that I thought were worth maybe digging in a little bit more on. One was one of the things that you look for is uh, sort of a stock at the fifty-two week high. Can can you sort of um, expand upon that a little bit? That's that's sort of counterintuitive for for a lot of folks. You know, in terms of uh, wanting to buy things low, if you're, you're talking about buy high, buy higher. Can you just sort of I can think of some reasons why you might want to do that, but I, I'd like to hear them directly from you. I don't want to sure. uh, project onto you what I think they might think. 
Yeah. Okay. So I think about every great company that's gone up 100, 200, 300, whatever person, you know, times in value. One of the common denominators of all those companies is that they at some point had to hit a 52 week high. Right. Um, so if you, if you take that into consideration and you're looking for it, like I'm not looking for something that's going to go up 15 or 20% value where, you know, it, you know, or, or certainly I'm not looking for a, a purely a value situation where it's trading at 50 cents on the dollar. Because at best, if it goes back to fair value, you're, you're making 100%. I'm looking for something that's going to go up 10, 20, 30 times in value. And to do that, one of the common denominators is that at some point they got to hit a 52-week high. So that's one of the things. It, it, it sort of shrinks my universe of companies that I'm looking for. And then psychologically, there's, there's a factor as well. Because we're ingrained to think we want to buy low and sell high, Usually you get a major inflection point when a stock breaks out of a, you know, a congestion um, a pattern or breaks out to a 52 week high. That basically means that anybody who is tethered to a price has sold their shares. And now you're looking at brand new sort of um, uh, brand new territory in terms of um, uh, uh, you know, prices. That, a, new sh- a new shareholder base. Exactly. You're looking at brand new shareholder. <clears throat> Right. So if, you, if you're really into technicals, you, you understand that you're breaking out to a new level and exactly that. you got new shareholders that. that uh, is, it, is it strictly price level or is it market cap of the company or is it both? Well, OK, so now we're going to get into some some finer details of this. So there's you're really looking for um, psychologically people are tethered to price and not not as much market cap um, there. You know, if if. A company is buying back their shares, and of course, their market cap is is technically decreasing, even though the share price is uh, um, staying staying static. Um, so it's it, there's there's sort of two answers to your question. One is um, the, the the psychological factor of the breakout into 52 highs, but ultimately you want to see a company that's growing in value, so you want to see their market cap growing. So, so as, as part of your main thesis on this, one part technical in the sense of a trading type thing, but then also part um, com- a company that's growing in value, it, intrinsic value very rapidly is likely to be at a 52 week high. Yes, uh, more times than not, that's happening. And what I've always said is you're using fundamentals to determine which stock to buy, and you're using the technicals to tell you when to buy. So if, if, you, if you can get all those things going, obviously you're increasing your odds that you've got something that's going to see a, a more rapid recognition in, in, uh, in pricing. Got it. Got it. Mm-hmm. Eric, did I interrupt you with a question? No, 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 no. Um, do you want to go to another story? Yeah, why don't we do another? I mean, I'm sure you've had some some things that haven't worked out over time where you've bought something at a high and it looked like it was growing and for whatever reason it just it didn't didn't sort of pan out maybe if you could walk us through one of those and sort of how things went along the way and sort of maybe some lessons learned on that and so I feel like if if you're pursuing a strategy where you're buying at the 52 big high you know you got to be very watchful that the story doesn't change in such a way where you get you get whacked hard so um, yeah now I mean so I don't blindly buy just because those those factors are in play I, I still look at some sort of valuation uh, thesis, right? So whether it's price to earnings or price to EBITDA or something that, that tells me, okay, e- even though it's it's gone up in price, there's still some um, sort of value in comparison to its growth metrics. So there, there's a margin of safety you're always looking for. 
Um, so that that protects you somewhat. But I, I mean, I got to tell you, of course, there, there's been a lot of examples. Uh, probably can't even count that high as far as companies that look like they had everything going for it. They're breaking up 52 week highs. And, you know, the next quarter, for whatever reason, they, they miss their numbers. And all of a sudden you're, you know, you're underwater. So yeah. that happens a lot. Um, the, the, the way I protect myself around that is that I, I never go all in and take a big position day one. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking, uh, you know, at, you know, sort of the, the, the idea that maybe a third or, or some form of starter position, I, I've, you know, I've got my starter position. I'm looking for a reason to add to it. And that's only going to come over time and it's kind of going to come through execution um, and, and, you know, and not just execution on the business, but execution on share action as well, you know, price action. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's about the best way I can protect myself in those circumstances. And so are you sort of, um, you know, when you take that starter position, you're sort of seeing how it feels owning it, seeing how you feel following it, seeing if, if the guys that are running it do what they say they're going to do and sort of all of, all of those sort of things. I mean, like, so walk, so you, you take a starter position and how long does it take you to build to like a, either build to a real position or sort of get out? So um, it, it, it's sort of up to the specific uh, circumstances or the opportunity. So I, you know, it can take years to build the full position. I mean, there's, there's stocks that I'm still adding, you know, I started buying three, four years ago and I'm still buying now. Um, mm -hmm. There's others that, uh, you know, I'll start buying a position and, you know, two or three weeks in, I realize I've, I've made either a big mistake or I've missed something or, you know, management does or says something wrong and I'm out. Um, it, there, there, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule uh, in terms of timing. Um, it's, you know, it, yeah, each, each circumstance is different, but um, it's key for me that um, I don't enter my whole position early. I'm, I'm looking for validation. And is that validation, or, you know, when you increase that starter position, is it mostly being increased because fundamentals change? I could say increase or decrease, or are you doing that also based on some technicals? If you have the same fundamental reason that you established a starter position, but the price for one reason or another started to drift back down, are you going to look to add there? Uh, or is that something more of a trade? You know, how, do you, how do you think about that? So, so um, this is where I leave it a little bit open because I do tend to trade on some technical. So if there's a, a good solid trend um, as far as price action and I still like the stock and the stock still is, is cheap, by my measurement, then I will look for little opportunities to add to my position based on, you know, maybe it's, it's hitting its trend line on the way up. Um, so there, there's that. And then sometimes, you know, the trend breaks, but I've, I've still got very high conviction on the stock. Now I'm going to look for an opportunity where the stock is, is really based out the fundamentals, you know, as long as the fundamentals still look strong, I'll, I'll take a, even a longer term approach and say, okay, this, the technicals aren't going to be on my side right now, but the fundamentals are so compelling that I'm still going to trade or still going to add to my position here. So it, there's, again, there's different factors that come to play, but sure. um, it, it's, I'm, I'm either buying longer term for the fundamentals and not caring about the, the technicals, or I'm, I'm, I'm adding based on, you know, decent fundamentals and the technicals look more appealing. Got it. Go ahead, Eric. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to go off on another tangent. So you you uh, you wrap this one up for us. Uh, I wasn't going to wrap it up. I was going to go on my own tangent. You want oh, to have Tangent Corner? 
What's your sure. tangent? <laughs> well, my tangent was we uh, we were going to jump into a story where everything just kind of went against them, and that's what I wanted to hear about. Um, so that was my tangent. What do you got okay. for me? I, I got one tangent to go down before we go down that that tangent. So you you put a pin in that one for a second, and then we'll circle back to it. So it's not, so it sounds like a, like a key element to what you're doing is trying to get you're talking about conviction, and that's conviction in sort of the the growth of the enterprise is 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 it's growing at a very fast rate. So how do you how do you go about getting that conviction? What's your what's your diligence around that? And you know, are you how how are you evaluating it? Is, is it is it is it TAM? Is it an in, is it that they're eating? Is it an end market that's growing? Is it shared? It, like what are the common things that you see where 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 you're getting where you're building confidence? So um, I mean, there's a lot of factors, uh, and, and a lot of it comes from you know the, the years of experience of, of doing a lot of things wrong. But um, you know, we, we look. I, I look for things like, um, you know, nobody's talking about this company, right? Um, uh, iPhone management, and they haven't had a shareholder call them in six months, right? Th those things are weird anomalies, but they give me an extra layer of confidence because I know that I may be the only one buying it. And that's part of the reason why the stock is trading or it's, or it's you know, valued where it is right now. So it's, it's weird things like that. You know, the... The one thing I haven't mentioned that I think is really key is that I don't just measure it against itself. Like when I look at a stock, um, I look at all the pieces and I measure it against everything else in my portfolio. So for it to become a significant position in my portfolio, it has to be significantly better than something I've got very high conviction on. So it sets the bar quite high. So to do that, now I've got to make sure that it's you know undiscovered, mispriced, starting to trade properly and a whole bunch of things where you know some of the best stocks i've got in my portfolio are already demonstrating that i've already got conviction i i, I know management they've executed they've proven they can execute so it, it's tough for for me to to build you know significant conviction in something else unless it's really already starting to prove itself quite a bit that makes mm -hmm. sense yeah, and your opportunity set. So you, you mentioned having this self. Are you normally fully invested with this, or do you normally have some? Are you normally running fully invested? So like you know, the opportunity cost is another idea. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's again knowing my personality. I have a very hard time holding any significant amount of cash. So what what I'm always looking to do, I kind of use it as a. It's almost like a sports franchise, right? I've got really good players, and I'm constantly trying to find somebody to trade for. And if I can't find somebody better, I'm just not going to trade that that player, right? Mm -hmm. So um, there, there's no point in holding cash. I feel that at any one time, I've got you know maybe five to ten of the best players that are out there. Mm. So that's interesting. So uh, are you familiar with uh, Googie? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we had Googie on. I don't know what a couple of weeks ago. Um, I great investor and one of the things that he said and that he wanted to really reinforce in the podcast with him was be prepared for this idea that you're holding losers mm -hmm. and so how do you identify and i think he's right you know mm -hmm. i think your your batting average isn't going to be 100 percent. if it is mm -hmm. kudos to you or whoever out there it's yeah so how do you go about that evaluation process of your names obviously you're looking at it in isolation um but you know that when you're looking at that opportunity set, how are you doing it in a way that's kind of unbiased and you're not tethered to a previous thesis um, 
that you once had as you're trying to trade players in and out? Um, you know, one of the advantages I have is that I, I flip over a lot of rocks. Like I really, really look at a lot of uh, opportunities. So there's, you know, there's quantitative facts that I have to deal with. And if, if one company is growing at 20% and another one's growing at 50%, it's, you know, it, it's pretty easy to see which one should, you know, start to, to, you know, get more of my attention. Um, again, it's, it's important you have a set strategy in advance and you've got some form of criteria that you're going to abide by. Otherwise, if you're, if you're sloppy and you don't, you know, stick to your process, you're, you're just not going to perform well. So I'm constantly looking that's sort of the motivating factors. I'm trying to find that one that can replace my weakest link. Um, I, you know, and I will find it like it's, I, I know I, I go into all our due diligence and when we're looking at sort of in Canada, CEDAR filings, right? It's like Edgar down, down the States. Yeah. I know there's a, a gem in there somewhere. I've got to go find it. That's my job. I just got to go find it. And because I'm not sitting on cash, that means I've got to compare it to my weakest link. I'm constantly trying to groom that. And it's, it just happens. Um, yes, I get losers. Sometimes it, you know, they make it real easy on me because they completely, you know, crap the bed, however you want to term it. And uh, it becomes very obvious. I had that happen just a couple of weeks ago. You know, there's some, uh, an issue with a company that was, you know, very obvious and, no bones, no nothing. I sliced the head off and, and it was gone out of the portfolio. No questions asked. Um, that's what happens. I mean, no, nobody, nobody hits a hundred percent. Like you said, or bets a thousand. Um, you, you know, that, that has to be sort of part of the, the process and strategy. You're going to get a loser, yeah. deal with it early. Just don't mess around. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny people, uh, <laughs> It's funny, uh, you know. It's like uh, it's good. It's all. It's like also good marriage advice. Just learn to admit that you're wrong early. <laughs> it costs you less in the long Absolutely. run. Absolutely, I think I think there's a lot of analogies. Uh, investing in marriage is probably a lot of similarities in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Eric, you want to go on your tangent now? No, I mean I, I fully disclosed my tangent. We know what it is. Uh, yeah, let's talk about a story where you just you, you cut the head off of a name. You know, things things went south on you, and you you cut it out of the portfolio. Um, and we all are faced with those those types of situations. So, you you have do you have anything you can share with us? I I've got one that I'm I'm still I'm still uh, licking my wounds right now. It's the story I sort of just referenced right now. Um, it's it's a very long term holding of mine. I actually it was a company that was private that went public. Um, I had helped fund the company um, early on when it was still private, um, helped fund them when they were, uh, went public, and uh, helped fund them all the way along. Um, I'm going to say close to 20 years in terms of how long I was holding this company. Wow. Um, wow. You know, they, they would have glimmers of, I, I'd say more than glimmers, they were having some great uh, progress executing and doing the right things. and and hitting milestones and then um, the legs were chopped out from under them. They, they lost a very significant contract that was uh, a significant part of their business. And, um, you know, the, the knowledge or experience that I've had that typically when something starts to go wrong, it, it's seldom in isolation. There's other things that happen with it. And, um, you know, it was clear that it was the weakest link in my portfolio and, uh, I, you know, and, and 
being sort of what we do with, you know, writing a newsletter, uh, I was very public about it, uh, made a statement right then and there that this was going to be, you know, exiting my portfolio as fast as possible. And uh, that's what we did. We, we got it out as fast as we could and uh, had cash available. And now we were energized to go um, and go and find something that would replace it. Um, the, the, I think something that investors have to understand is there's not just the sort of the, the financial currency you're working with, but there's also the mental and emotional currency. How many times have people sat on a loser because they think they just want to get back, you know, another 10% or trying to have it bounce a little bit. And, and meanwhile, they're, they're sort of missing all the other plays that they could be, you know, working with. And, um, you know, just sort of, it, it messes your head up. It's, it's just not worth it. So there's a really big psychological component that, that investors really have to understand and understand their personality to be able to uh, make it part of their, their sort of investing criteria. Yeah, Eric and I have this one all the time. There are certain companies that like we just stay away because we because I'll say to Eric, I can't I, I can't objectively evaluate this. I, I have too many feelings about it. And it's just sort of, you know, it's 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 the mind space issue. So it's like, you know, the 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 bandwidth is so valuable. Why why waste it on on, on things that just are gonna inflict brain damage? Uh, absolutely. And and um you get you get clustered up into something you can't think properly and it's it, it's so important that you leave emotions and um you know your your mental state out of investing that that's you know that's that's the beauty of this is is the more sort of robotic you are in in you know sticking with your process typically the better you do so take emotions out and because i know my psyche now um I don't want any leftover emotions. Cut something as fast as you can and, and on to the next one. Twenty years is an awful lot of, a long time to be involved in something. What 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 finally made you say enough is enough? Well, it, it again, it's sort of like what I mentioned. It's um, my experience. I know that y- you you don't want to have a okay company in your in your portfolio, right? You really want to try to strive to have it. You know, if, if your portfolio makeup is ten companies, maybe, maybe you know, maybe twelve, and you know, eight of them are your your key positions, and the other four are kind of your starter positions. You want to constantly go out there and say to yourself, "I know that these are the ten best I can find, or the twelve best I can find." Um, if you're doing that, you, you you can gain more conviction in in your holdings. You can hold them longer. You can hold them through bumps in the road. Um, it, it's amazing how, how important it is. Like we're not looking for companies that we think are okay or, or good. We're really trying to find opportunities that are absolutely fantastic. Otherwise, what's the point? They're there. You might as well go find them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. How do you, um, just by the nature of sort of the rocks that you're flipping over, how do you differentiate between something that's a real story and something that's more of a story stock? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, in the microcap space, I'd say 80% are more story than, than real, maybe, maybe even higher. Um, you know, <laughs> it's tough. It's tough because, uh, you know, I've, I've been around the block a few times and I know sometimes story stocks can do real well and, and how, you know, how it all works. Um, you know, we, we see a lot of manias over, you know, over the last 25, 30 years, whatever. Um, and you, you have to be disciplined enough to sit there and say, okay, that is 
not the criteria for a company that I'm looking to invest in. And even though I know it's probably going to do well in the short term, I can't build enough conviction around that to be able to build a big enough position in the stock so that if it does work out as well as I think it will, it's going to have a meaningful impact on my on my portfolio. So for me, it's it goes back to the word conviction. I've got to be able to have enough conviction and to, to own a material amount of that stock or at least have the ability to say I, I may add to, to my position so it's a material amount. And the story stocks just won't cut it. Like if the fundamentals aren't there, if if all the other pieces that that uh, that are needed aren't there, I just won't build a meaningful position. So what's the point? Hmm. And when you're doing this, do you get to know the the management and the management team and sort of you know all, all that sort of stuff? Are you sort of uh, how 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 closely tied in are you with those folks that that you you got your finger on what's going on? It sounds like you run. Is it did I hear you right about eight to ten sort of core positions? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably right now have about 15 positions in my portfolio, but I'd say a good seven or eight are the majority of, of that. You know, the All whole, froze. Yeah. Or maybe uh, I froze. Oh, you froze a little bit. I know I'm, I can, uh, I, um, I'll just continue, but um, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, it's typically about eight to 10. Um, and um, yeah, I, I'm just, it goes back to the theory before I'm, I'm constantly trying to find something to replace it. Um, your, your question is more around management. Like what usually happens is I'll build a position well before I speak to management, the numbers and the price action will probably tell me more about what's going on than the management team can tell me what I want to have after speaking with management is just, they, they sort of validate what my thesis is or they don't say something or do something, or, you know, I can tether some action that they claim is going to happen or something so that I can go back and review if it was correct or not. You know, how ethical are they? How honest are they? How, um, you know, you, you find in the micro cap space that, that a lot of these CEOs or management teams are very, they're, they're, they're excited and they want to tell you everything about the business and, and where they see the, the business going. Um, so it's, it's pretty easy to, um, to sort of validate that after the fact and see if, uh, if they're, you know, if, if they're living to what they're saying or, or, um, or offside in any way, but talking to management, I don't believe is as important as a lot of people think. Um, I, I know a lot of really good micro cap investors that spend very little time talking management. And if anything, sometimes it actually will poison your head. Um, because you you build a bit of a relationship and then you become a little too trusting and when something starts to go sideways you kind of you're willing to give them a chance that that can be dangerous right? yeah we always try to be very careful with that ourselves I mean there's a fine there's a fine line between uh, sort of being involved and then too involved to evaluate it objectively or evaluate the person objectively so it's very gonna be very very careful in our in our experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'll say one other thing is that um, there, there's been circumstances where I've actually started to build a position before talking management. And then I, I'll get on the phone with the CEO or somebody there and, uh, and immediately start selling the stock afterwards because they'll say something or do something that that just is offside. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that that I probably sold more positions after talking to management teams than bought positions after talking management teams. Um, it, it, it's just, 
it's that two or three percent sort of validation I want to hear from the CEO. If he says something wrong, I could completely throw my thesis out the window. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. uh, we're coming up to about an hour now, right? We're pretty close to it. Uh, yeah. So Eric, do you want to sort of any final questions? I, I've got one and uh, I guess uh, it's what, what do you, what do you know now about investing that you wish you knew when you were starting out? Uh, that, you know, the, the smaller investor has a lot more uh, advantages than, than they think they do. Um, I'm convinced that there's opportunities out there that, uh, that can completely uh, change your financial uh, life. If you look hard enough, be prepared to do uncomfortable things and go look in places where others aren't looking. Um, the idea that somebody, because they're an analyst or a fund manager knows more than you is, is uh, you know, it's not true. Um, and really it's, um, I think it's more about emotional literacy than it is uh, financial literacy in terms of uh, being, being good at, at, at micro cap investing. So um, it's, uh, it's easier than people think, but there's more work than people think uh, in the space. And if you know what you're doing, it, 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 it uh, anybody can, you know, make a really significant financial difference in their life. Great. Eric, any closing questions? Do you want to land the plane? I do. I have nothing that could follow that up. That was the perfect way to end, Paul. Thank you. So that was so well said. That was great. Uh, I thank you so much for being on the show with us. I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I don't think we've seen each other for a number of years now. So it's good to see you again. Good to catch up. Thank you. Um, what are the dates for the, the conference next year? I know we could check you out. It's uh, Canada.SNN.network. Um, what are the dates? It's it's January 6th and 7th. Great. And uh, so a couple weeks away, pretty soon. And the location awesome. is the interwebs. It's the, uh, the interweb, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Remember, we're available anywhere podcasts are available. You can check us out at snn.network. You can check us out at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. You can check us out at the SNN YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash snnwire. Gary, always great to see you. Can't wait to see you again in person, I think, tomorrow. And Paul, thank you so much again for being here. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Paul. A lot of fun. Thanks a lot, guys. The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.